This program is supported by an educational grant from Sun Pharma Canada, Inc., made available through the CDA Corporate Supporter Program. Hi, welcome to Dermalogs. I'm Dr. Carrie Purdy. I'm a dermatologist that works in Halifax, part-time community, part-time academic, and you hear from me every time. As residents, you don't always get a chance to hear from dermatologists outside of your center, and you don't always get a chance to get information about topics that maybe aren't as readily available in your center. And so this podcast is designed to try to change some of that. So far, we've covered wound care, lasers, biologics, cosmetics, and contact dermatitis. And we're going to take another deep dive into all things contact in just a moment. But before we do, I just want to let you know this is our last episode in this first season of the podcast. And I want to thank everyone who subscribed and downloaded the podcast so far. I'm just thrilled with the positive feedback we've been getting. Amazingly, this podcast has been selected as new and noteworthy in the iTunes Science and Medicine category for eight weeks now. Okay, on today's episode, as I said, we're going to do a deeper dive on contact dermatitis, and we're very lucky to have with us none other than Dr. Melanie Pratt. She's a professor at the University of Ottawa in dermatology, as if anyone hasn't heard of her, which I would find hard to believe in Canada, she's a world expert in contact dermatitis. She's got a passion for teaching. I consider her to be one of my uh, dermatology lady mentors. She's had a bazillion publications. And Mel, thank you so much for joining me on this second part of our contact dermatitis podcast. My pleasure. So in terms of, you know, one of the areas that I think is really important for us to cover for the residents is contact. And and that's partly what kind of got all of this going, because I think that there's certain centers across the country, obviously, Ottawa is a place where the residents get a lot of exposure and contact in contact, contact to contact. Uh, and not everywhere is like that. And so I do think it's something that's a really key area, not only for the clinical practice, but also for exam prep. And so um, I thought it was something important to talk about. Now, I also have a sort of slight interest in allergic contact. And I would say that that's from spending my time with you. So I did a little bit of clinic with you when I was a medicine resident. And then again, when I was a dermatology resident, I came in and did a month with you. And I have to say, I felt really Sherlock Holmesian uh, when we do some of the contact stuff. What? How did you get into this area originally? I mean, you, you've got sort of a broad interest in germ, but what brought you into contact? I think it was um, in my third year. My so we did three years of dermatology after two undergrad years. So it was my final year, and I was allowed to go off for um, three months to St. John's, and. It, that St. John's Hospital for Skin Disease in London, England. Right. And I realized when I was there how sophisticated uh, patch testing and contact was. At 10, um, Cronin and, and uh, Dr. Kellnan, there were these amazing uh, sluice and contact derm. And um, we saw these amazing cases from all over Europe, chronic actinic dermatitis, all kinds of occupational disease. And I realized how it was such an important part of dermatology and that it wasn't actually that well done in Ottawa. Right. So I kind of said that when I went back from my elective to the chief at the time, Dr. Montgomery, and he said, well, 
okay then. <laughs> Your turn. <laughs> Start a clinic. And I said, uh, I'll do that. And and then at that time, this was before emails and the internet. And so everything was phone calls. When you had an issue with a patient, I would get on the phone to Fran Stores in Portland, Oregon, who's a, um, a national treasurer in, in, in the world of contact dermatitis, or even Ben uh, Dr. Not Ben Fisher, but um, Dr. Alex Fisher, you know, that yeah. Fisher. As in Fisher textbook. and DeLeo? Yes. Okay. And I would call them of these cases. We had a meeting, a couple of meetings here in Ottawa, and I invited them as guest speakers, and we had interesting cases to present. And that got me going, actually. Okay. It's very rewarding, actually, to to do it because you solve problems. Are you trying to recruit some of the residents? Uh, I am. With that comment? <laughs> I am because, as you know, I, I'm i 65 now and I'm thinking I have to do some succession planning uh, over the next five years. So I'm, I'm, I'm trying to, everybody's with me. I tried to lure them in. <laughs> well, I, I got to say, you got a pretty good pitch. So, um, yeah. you know, any residents out there interested in contact, get in touch with Mel. Yeah, I think they're all talking to each other. Uh, <laughs> Sort of, but anyway. Um, so I suspect that a lot, as you mentioned, you know, you didn't have the access to the internet. You wouldn't have had these databases that you could yes. access all this information. Um, you probably did a lot of learning on the job, if you will. Calling. Do you have any resources that you specifically recommend to residents, you know, if they're thinking about contact? Absolutely. It's, it's so much easier and so much more comprehensive now. Um, well, first of all, I, I would encourage everybody that gets involved in this and even general dermatologists that uh, do a screening series to become members of the American Contact Dermatitis Society. By doing so, you have access to a wonderful journal that is actually very helpful. It is, but, yeah. Yeah. And also an access to uh, a database called uh, CAMP. Right. And um, and this is a wonderful resource because at the end of the week when we patch test patients and you determine what they're allergic to, if let's say it's hair dye, paraphenylene diamine and, you know, rubber allergens, thyram, and perhaps uh, that common preservative in a lot of shampoos, uh, methylisothiazidolone, what we can do is we can plug these allergens um, into this database and then create products for them specifically tailored to their uh, their allergen list and that are free of their allergens. So right. we can really direct them which way to go with a shampoo, a moisturizer, gloves, hairspray, insect repellent, you know, deodorant, everything. And they it's so that's wonderful. Yeah, and then you can email it directly to the patient, And then we right? email it directly that's... to them. And then they also get access codes. Let's say I didn't give them everything they wanted. They can get back into the database to get further information or find out ingredients in products right. or get information sheets, which I will give them on all their separate allergens. But let's say they lost them and they need to re replace them. So that's, that's a wonderful resource. The other thing that I do is I try to teach them how to read labels. Right. I have a lot of marking pens that I go to their bottle of shampoo and I'll highlight their allergen. So they, oh, there they see that. So that's, <laughs> uh, they, uh, and they identify it for them. They bring in their products on the final day. 
The other thing we do is there's um, an app that you could download for free from iTunes called Think Dirty. I was going to ask if you uh, yeah. had a lot of experience with that. I mean, I have to admit, that's not the first thing that comes to mind when you hear that, yes, that yes. title, but it really is looking for product uh, yeah. ingredients, right? So I just, I show them, I, I pick one of their products and I plug it in and I say, if you can't read that label, which is hard to do, to be frank, because it's sometimes very tiny, this will show you all the ingredients in a product and you can also identify much more clearly which the particular um, chemical, the, the, the allergen that you're sensitized right. to, and, and you can, uh, or you can scan it actually. Right. So you can scan it or read the ingredients. So that's very helpful. Um, yeah. And then as you know, I also have, um, for people that just can't do that, people that don't have iPhones or don't go on uh, don't have computers or feel very uncomfortable sort of uh, handling that. I have a, a list of products that I've taken major allergens out of yeah. ready to go. You know, I give them a shampoo, a conditioner, a moisturizer, a glove, detergent, et cetera. So, and I, I'll i know what their allergens are and I'll highlight for them on that sheet which ones they should stay with. A lot of Folks just want that simple route. And yeah, they don't and I and to yeah. be fair, you know, I kind of I kind of bootlegged your list, although I think you know that because you shared it with me. But yeah, you know, I do have an irritant free, and I still in our office we still refer to it as Mel's list. And uh, it's and actually it Sandy's list. Sandy's it's list. Sandy, oh. It's Sandy's list, Ooh. but I changed I changed it. So you keep adding to it and taking things off. Yeah, the Mel slash Sandy list. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I agree. I'm just going to go back to a little bit of what you said about the contact dermatitis society because it's it's actually yes. fairly cheap. And the other thing is that is quite a good journal. I, I started yes. reading it, especially the pearls and zebras in the back. I think that yeah. there's some really good little tips that you could get. And I keep yeah. bringing it to the residents saying, making them guess what the allergen is with very minimal yes. clinical information. So yes. Now, now speaking of that, I, I want to get into a little bit more practical stuff because one of the okay. things that the residents often get asked about or examined on are thinking about different regional um, right. specific dermatoses or sorry, dermatitides or, you know, occupational things or what to think oh. about in X, Y, and Z scenario. So I just want to throw a couple of the more sure common ones at you and maybe tell me where you know how you approach these so I, I get sent this a lot um probably at least a couple times a month i'm sent a young woman who has um eyelid eczema and so right. i think even if you don't get into allergic contact as your subspecialty area you're still going to see a lot of contact and so right when you see that eyelid eczema you have a sense that you think it's allergic contact what are your top allergens that are already spinning around in your mind it's very interesting. Um, as you know, I'm a, a member of the North American Contact Dermatitis Research Group. So this is a group that of 18 people across North America that collect data. Right. And in 2007, we did publish on eyelid dermatitis. But it's interesting. I, I look at the list in that publication, which is a decade ago, and it's changed. So you really have to stay current. Right. Um, because the number one allergen that I think is important now is not on this list. And that would be methylchloralizothiazinlone, methylizothiazinlone. Let, let's just call it methylizothiazinlone. MCIMI? MCIMI. <laughs> anyway, that is causing an epidemic of problems worldwide. 
Right. That's a water-based preservative. Yeah. And is in most shampoos, conditioners, wet wipes, hairsprays, moist, a lot of moisturizers, water-based paint. It's in Febreze that all those hockey players really uh, spray on their hockey oh, clothes. Oh. Uh, laundry detergents, dish detergents. It's in, you know, for instance, just example, Dove Shampoo, Pantene, Tresemme, Herbal Essence, Head and Shoulders, John Frieda, Moroccan Oil, blah, blah, blah. So so it, I honestly see probably 10 cases a week. Right. And often these people can present on the eyelids. So, okay. So eyelids are probably the first to go. Yeah. Uh, and then you, you then in retrospect, they think, oh, yeah, I do have an itchy scalp. Yeah. And I get on my upper back uh, some dermatitis, but they will come in. I also, with women, you have to ask about uh, nail polish and shellac nails with acrylates. You have to ask about um, their makeup they're putting on. And we certainly, in mascaras, you know, propolis and rosin are in mascaras. Fragrance is a big issue. I mean, Mm -hmm. fragrance is Mm -hmm. uh, next to nickel, Um, number two, methyl isothiazinlone, is actually not as prevalent as nickel, but if you if you uh, factor in what we call spin, yes. which is a measure of positive reactivity um, over relevance, methyl isothiazinone is number one. Right. Okay. Okay. So uh, so fragrance is important, and that's in everything. I mean, shampoos, conditioners, moisturizers. Yeah. And 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 specifically, we see a lot of. Lemonine and linalool, which are two fragrances that are in a ton of products, right. but they're also in about 90% of essential oils. So you will find linalool in lavender and rosemary and tea tree and peppermint. Well, that's what I was just going to say. My most recent zebra and pearls out of the Contact Dermatitis magazine gave a uh, a case of a an essential oil diffused fragrance yes. that the person kept getting recurrent facial eczema and you know I, something I literally had never thought of. So, right, and, and in humidifiers as well, um, but in these diffusers, candles or direct onto the skin, and they're marketed. There's a company called Dutura, Dutera, sorry, uh, who um, I, I mean these are sold as medicinal right. uh, products <laughs> to to patients that uh, or consumers who are are told that they have a medicinal value they're going to help your child with their attention deficit disorder or help encourage uh sleep and uh, right. relaxation and decrease anxiety and treat eczema and, I mean there's <laughs> they- absolutely no evidence and in fact they are really become a uh, an issue and a problem, and we do see uh, many cases. The other thing I have to point out those topical antibiotics in right. like bacitracin that's in polysporin is a yep. big player. Yeah, and everybody's um, uh, you know a house in the bathroom you could go into the cupboard and find a tube of polysporin because mom has that for cuts and sores Always. and slaps it in. All the cuts and scrapes. Yeah, and that's in uh, polysporin eye drops. And um, also um, uh, it's in first aid creams. So bacitracin's an issue. Uh, and another topical antibiotic is neomycin, 
which is not used so much in um, Canada, but it is in Neosporin in the States. So it's... Yes. And um, it also is in the same family as tobramycin, Mm -hmm. which is in all those... um, Everybody that has a cataract is given by their ophthalmologist, Tobradex, and that's a big issue. Yeah. Hair now, dye, hair dye too, paraffinoline dye. Exactly. Yeah, I was just going to ask to, um, you know, just to come back like a little bit to the fragrance thing that you mentioned. Yes. And and obviously fragrance is a big problem when you're looking at face and, you know, eyelids and yeah. scalps. Um, hands. Just a practical, and hands, practical tip. So fragrance free is sort of that key word that you're looking for right. rather than unscented. Is that correct? Or am I misinterpreting? No, that? I don't think there's any regulation on that. So labeling is not very um, accurate. And okay. so I think it's it's probably best for you to direct the patient which hand cream they can use and shampoo that is actually right. truly free of fragrance. If you just relied on the labeling, I think you could be very easily misdirected. Okay. Um, and, and there's masking sense, which, uh, but I would say... Um, you know, that's when your list comes in in your office right. where you actually yeah. direct them specifically. Yes. Uh, yeah. And and that's another thing too. I guess we'll probably talk about scalp a little bit, but with uh, shampoo where so many of them have MCI, Yeah. Um, what is your preferred shampoo that you think is safe? Is it still free and clear? Well, here's, yeah, but that, uh, no, free and clear is is fine, but it has to be ordered. And a lot of people find that difficult to actually Absolutely, get online and yeah. order. Yeah. So then if you go to Live Clean, that's still scented. That actually has, uh, you know, that has a lavender and linalool in it, but yeah. it doesn't have methylisothiazinlone. The Schwarzkopf Gliss yeah. has fragrance, but it does not have methylisothiazinlone, okay. nor does it have any glucoside. Glucosides, desyl glucoside is in the free and clear, and it is in the live clean. Okay. Rarely is an allergen, but we are seeing it move up on the list. Um, desyl glucoside is seen in 2.1% of the group of people that are patch tested by the North American group. So it's, it's, it's not at the top of the list, but it still can be a relevant allergen. So it's it's when you say um, free and clear, they'll be fine. Well, not always. I mean, we do see glucoside um, allergy, and we know that most of them cross react. So, so I a, guess the I mean, just I guess for practical tip then for residents uh, or early career people, you know, I guess you do your patch testing and patch then you direct test. them based on what you're seeing. That's right. Yeah. Noth- nothing is hypoallergenic. Everything has to have something in it. It's important to know what the key common players are. But Absolutely. Not, but when people take my list at, uh, you know, as if it's absolutely gospel, gospel and uh, allergy-free, that's not true. I mean, there's ingredients in those things, but they're less likely or less common, right? Yeah. I think I have it uh, labeled as low irritant product list. And so, you know, now you said that uh, you said one of those buzzwords that I think probably drives you nuts, hypoallergenic. Yes. How often do patients say, but it's hypoallergenic? Uh, I know. It's, well, actually what they say now is it's all natural, which brings up my next point. Um, because <laughs> it, there's this concept that if something is a plant or a natural product, it is 
allergen free, mm-hmm. which as you know, I always use the line, well, you remember poison ivy? That's very natural. <laughs> <laughs> that can cause some problems. So we do see reactions uh, to plants that are in yes. products. Yeah. And specifically the compositi group of plants, which is a very broad group. And that's, you know, things like chamomile, calendula, sunflower, right. oxide, daisy. Not commonly. That, you know, they actually come in about 1%. So it's, it's not, they're not a big group. But um, other natural products are propolis right. uh, and, and rosin. So propolis is um, the allergen that's in uh, uh, beeswax. Right. So, uh, so that can be a, de- and that's very common Bird's in bird's bees and all those lip balms these young girls put on. We do see reactions to the propolis in there or the rosin, and that would be in the waxy base. Mm-hmm. And that's because in the winter, as you know, your lips get dry and cracked. Your barrier is broken down. So you're putting on these lip balms 50 times a day and a certain percentage of these young girls become sensitized to uh, the ingredients. Right. And if it isn't the propolis or rosin in the lip balm, it could be the flavor such as peppermint or cinnamon. Yeah. Um, it could be the sunscreen agent because they put, actually it's very interesting to note that sometimes we still see paba esters, patamato, yeah, which is not in any other sunscreens, but it's still in lip balms. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah. So do you ever, I I feel like people tell me this a lot and I I don't think it's legit, but do you have patients trying to tell you how they're allergic to plain petrolatum? Yeah, I always say to them, Vaseline can be inelegant to some people, can be sometimes make them itchy or irritating, but it's not an allergen. Unless it's carbolated, it can sometimes have... um, chlorocresol in it, which is a very, very rare allergen. But Vaseline has no water, so it doesn't have to be preserved. And I said to to them, all those allergens on your back are in in Vaseline. They're all in petrolatum mainly. Some are aqueous. So, um, and we just patch tested you all week and did not, re- did not react. <laughs> you you don't have an angry back, yes. which I'm going to bring up yes. later. Yeah. So, and I think too, probably we. I, I try. I've found myself being a little bit more careful too with regard to the Vaseline because I, I know that there's those little tins now, and yes. there's like a pink one and a blue. Yeah. So when I when I tell patients to get Vaseline, I'm like straight up tub, you know. Yes. Yes. From the shelf, and is that what you say as well? Yes, I do. Yeah. yeah. Okay. That's a good point. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, so we talked a little bit about eyelids. Uh, we talked a little bit about lips. I think in terms of maybe um, scalp, you had mentioned a couple of allergens, but I do get a ton of people that come in with just itchy scalp. They have an itchy red scalp. It's not psoriasis. It's not a scarring alopecia. Um, you know, besides yeah. the ones that we've talked about, which are the MCI uh, or hair dye, pen- paraphenylene dye. Yeah. What are some of the other scalp things that might come to mind for you? Well, certainly don't... Uh- Paraphenylene diamine, which, as you know, is hair dye, and and the related hair dyes in, in Europe, they use 2,5-diaminotoluene sulfate, which is uh, 25-30% of the time can cross-react with paraphenylene diamine. Okay. Uh, the other thing is the other preservatives that can be, uh, other than methylizothiazinolone, uh, although the incidence of the formaldehyde releasers has gone down, they're still there. Right. We still, uh, formaldehyde is still seen at 
in 8.4% of people we test. And the uh, related formaldehyde-releasing preservatives are in a ton of shampoos. Um, Certainly, we see uh, DMDM hydantoin, diazolidinylurea, imidazolidinylurea, quaternion 15. But they have gone down. Um, And uh, the incidence has decreased because I think methylizothiazidolone has taken the place of... yeah. And it's used more often. Um, the other thing, of course, is fragrance, as we mentioned. Um, uh, foaming agents. Right, yeah. Now, again, not a big player, but ha- has to be considered in some people. Uh, all shampoos have a sudsing agent or surfactant. Usually it's cocoamidylpropyl betaine. Right. And we know that uh, when you screen for that, you you have to test to what we call DMAPA, dimethylaminopropylamine, which is felt to be a degradation product or a contaminant in cocoamidylpropylbetaine. So that can sometimes be the issue. Um, again, um, I would not say that's on the top 10 list, but you're asking me specifically about scalps. Now, when you become a part of the North American uh, dermatitis group, do you have a test where they make you say all these chemical names. Cause like, I don't know how you guys remember all this. You know, it's a lot of repetition, but to be okay. honest with you, um, I have problems <laughs> enunciating a lot of words. For some reason I'm okay with this because as you know, <laughs> there's a lot of repetition. Um, but so foaming agents and don't forget about lanolin. Lanolin's in a lot of yeah. um, uh, cosmetic products. products and hair products. And, um, the other thing are the rubber accelerators, headphones. Right. Look what we're wearing. Yeah. Actually, every week I see rubber cases, and I always ask them about headphones. And so do you pe- think there's also maybe something with like cell phone cases and things, you know, that we're putting up on yeah. our face all the time? And um, toothbrush handles, yeah. hairbrush yeah. handles. People put on uh, their scrunchies in their hair or their go swimming as their rubber caps. F- hockey players. All those mm-hmm. helmets and um, uh, the neck brace and the uh, mouth. I mean, they're they're, they're sweating cov- into it. They're covered in rubber. It's a big yeah. issue. So there are a number of rubber accelerators, as you know. And um, probably the commonest one is Carba, coming in at 4.6% of people we test. Um, uh, so it's important to ask about, when you're talking about scalps, you know, male or female, dyeing your hair or not, what are your shampoos and conditioners? Are you playing sports? Do you right. wear headphones? Um, you know, uh, that kind of, are you a swimmer? Do you wear goggles? Are you wearing a cap? Um, so that's that comes into it as well. So recreational activities. Yeah. And then um, occupation. Absolutely. You know, yeah. And, and that's a great segue, although I do want to mention one of my favorite cases a resident came, she was a dermatology resident, came out and said, there's this guy, and he's got this really weird rash on his neck, and it's like streaked. And she couldn't figure out what was going on. And I went and I said, what were you doing? And he said, well, you know, my wife was out of town. I wanted to, you know, improve my look. So I put some just for men in, and then I went for a run on the treadmill. And it, he had sweat, and he was allergic to PPD. And the whole neck just like streaked where he sweat. Down with I this know. Die. So, oh, some of the the biggest um, reactions we get are to, to hair dye. I mean, some people oh, yeah. get explosive reactions, and as you know, you can become 
auto-exematized right Absolutely, all over. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And I think that's something that we forget about a lot too because sometimes you see this, you, you almost see an erythrodermic or this explosive almost yeah. bolus appearance and you forget about contact. So I think that's so, something to remember, especially Never with things like PPD. Never forget about it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I always have the Mel voice over my <laughs> shoulder saying, don't forget about contact. And yeah. you know, similarly, when you're talking about some of these things, I, it reminds me how I'm always a little embarrassed when I see you and I have my gel nails on. But um, or my, the, my shellac, my shellac. All the derm ladies, and they have uh, <laughs> have those nails. I would say ninety percent of them. I oh know yeah, I don't. Yeah. They hide their nails from me. <laughs> <laughs> I just sit on my hands when I see you. Now, yeah, so I, I did want to segue into thinking about specific occupations, and maybe yes. you know, rather than belaboring the point with each occupation, what are your top occupations that you're seeing more allergic contact in, and maybe um, a couple things that we need to think about in terms of an occupational history for people. Yeah. Um- we certainly see a lot of um, mechanics. Uh, that's not uncommon. Uh, healthcare workers. Right. So a lot of nurses, doctors, dentists, um, uh, lab techs um, with um, an assortment of contact allergy, mechanics, machinists, assemblers. There's uh, depends on um, your particular manufacturing industry in your region. Um, there's a place where they make hockey sticks just up the Ottawa Valley. And so we see uh, epoxy workers that making hockey sticks, or there used to be um, JDS Uniphase, the fiber optic assembly place that has actually moved now. But for a while there, I I saw probably over a hundred fiber optic assemblers who became epoxy allergic. Uh, So there are certain industrial applications in different regions, we have um, pulp and paper, yep. dome tar. So yep. you think about, well, methyl isothiazinolone again there. So, you know, what's very interesting about contact, you know, you learn a lot about what everything is made of, made from. And then right. you think, how do you know this stuff? But you have to because you get an occupation. So you really have to know, okay, what are hockey sticks made of? You right. know, what are plastic bobbins made of? Um, what's in dentistry? What does a dentist do? So what's in your root canal? What's in your filling, your composite filling? What would be in your your uh, your denture plate, your prosthesis? Um, what is he, what are the bond, what's in a bonding agent in a cement? All kinds of stuff. What, what are in, what metals are used in dentistry? Or, you know, if it's a, a mechanic, you have to know what's a car made of. Okay, right. what is he touching? Uh, what you know, the tires, the the uh, lubricating oils and uh, fuel, and uh, the gaskets and uh, brake lining pads and all kinds of stuff. See, so, like I said, Sherlock Holmes. I still yeah. remember. I still, you know, have visions of you like calling various companies and getting the MSDS or like you know, get, finding out that stuff was in that couch of the brick. And so, you know, uh, I think you really do get a lot of information that you, you don't necessarily think about or I don't think about on a day-to-day basis. So it's hard to apply it to the patients. Well, also with um, the ready access of communication between, well, you and me and all our yes. colleagues, but also uh, with the North American group. I mean, I got to tell you, a wonderful resource are... Um, the NACDG and and specifically the Canadians, like yeah. 
Yeah. Denny Sassville and Joel DeCoven and Sandy, they're so bright. Um, you know, it was actually Denny Sassville that told me to get dimethyl fumarate to test to when that guy came in, the patient from right. who thought he was allergic to his uh, recliner that he bought at the brick. And um, and he said, no, it's my recliner. I know it's my recliner. I said, oh, I don't think so. Oh, yes, it is. <laughs> well, <laughs> I he was bet right. it was. It was. Yeah. And, and then I found out that there was an epidemic of these reactions to sofas and recliners from furniture that had been in Europe, originally imported from China. And this dibethyl fumarate was in the little sachets that they use as fungicidal agents in the back of this furniture and it would leach out and diffuse throughout the furniture and and um, cause sensitization to a certain group. Usually guys watching hockey games in their shorts after they've gone for a run and they sit with their sweaty legs on the chair <laughs> for hours and drink beer. <laughs> That's not a vision I was hoping to really be thinking about tonight. And this but, guy um... was glued to his... He was watching the uh, NHL playoffs. Yeah. So, yeah, I you know, I do think there's some really cool stories and I know you've got a huge collection. But um, thinking about... One question that I always... I guess sometimes that I think it's important for the residents to think about would be, you know, when you're trying to determine if something is, is occupational or worsened by their job, what kind of timeline, like, are you kind of like, is it better when you're at work? What about if you're away from work, right. a week, two weeks away from work? What's your timeline for right. the history to figure that part out? Toby Matthias years ago made up um, what he called the Matthias criteria for establishing work relationship. Just yep. a few basic questions that still apply now. Uh, basically, um, uh, do they get better when they're away from work? Right. When they return to work, do they flare? And if they do so, uh, within what timeline? Are they patch test positive to any allergens? Are those allergens encountered in the work environment? Yeah. Um, and check the material safety data sheets to establish a cause-effect relationship. Um, and, um, and if you can even test to some of their own products from the work environment, and right. sometimes they have to be appropriately diluted, that's very important. So patients own products, as well as, uh, doing a, uh, probably an extended series, not just a screening series, but an appropriate extended series based on their, on their yeah. history. But so better away from work, flare on return to work. Patch test positive to relevant allergens okay. encountered in the workplace. Okay. Yeah, yeah, that's a pretty easy way to think about it, I yeah. guess. Yeah, yeah. And I, I did, before we talk about one of your passion areas of hand eczema, I, I just, the one other thing I always think about, or at least thought about when I was a resident or had a hard time grasping was this concept of what, what an angry back truly is. And so can you maybe just, what's your basic, like, resident level definition of an angry back and what do you do about it? I think it should be separated. Um, so there are some people that are not clear when they come for a patch testing that may have, this is what it is not. I'll first of all say uh, when people are bad atopics and they're not clear and you try to test them and they, they flare during that week, that's a little different than when you have somebody who is clear, you test them and they have 
several really big reactions, and sometimes the patches in the neighboring area will light up falsely. So you get right. some. So you get what I mean. You can't really believe that they're coming up to all surrounding ten allergens in that area. So right. sometimes it's just such a strong positive; it's spreading out beyond the site and lighting up surrounding areas. And that is what we call an angry back. Okay. So I differentiate that from when you have someone that probably shouldn't be tested because they haven't yet settled their bad atopic. You have to get them into a better clearance mode before you proceed with patch testing. And that's sort of a different situation. Okay. Uh, now, I do want to now spend a little bit of time um, on hands specifically. And so, yes. you know, one of the questions the residents specifically had was, um, what would be your approach to chronic hand dermatitis? So not, I this is like backtracking yes. before you right. necessarily think it's allergic, but when you see that patient right. that comes in, you know, the, right. the say 50 year old man, thick fissured sure. palms and or, you know, how do you approach sure. that? What are your, what is going through your head? Well, the first thing I, I do when I teach the residents to, to the they want to know what the person's occupation is, right? How long they've had the problem, and are they atopic? In other okay. words, do they have a childhood or adolescent or adult history of atopic dermatitis, seasonal allergies, hay fever, right? Uh, food or respiratory allergies? They have a flexural eczema, you know, in the antecubital and popliteal fossa. Are they atopic? And then secondly, what are they doing for a living? Uh, what are they putting on over the counter? What mm -hmm. shampoos are they using? What moisturizers? What gloves? Uh, are they young parents? They have triplets at home and they're bathing them, ten, you know, and then <laughs> in a lot of soap and water. Um, <laughs> you know, that's important. Um, oh, yeah, sure, and, sure. Um, are they using hand sanitizers? Uh, repeatedly, they healthcare workers and, you know, Purelling up the yin-yang. Uh, are they using antibacterial um, uh, cleansers? Or yep. All that kind of thing. But I think it's very important. I'm just going to digress a bit. I think it's very important, you ask those questions, but to, to try and classify hand eczema. Because right. it isn't just a single entity. Exactly. And I think so, that's where people get confused. Very, yeah. And so you want, number one, a description of the pattern. Okay. I, when some when I the the more senior residents or and anybody after three months knows don't go in and just say oh he's got a hand eczema I say yeah but where <laughs> okay <laughs> like let's describe it oh on on the palms I said well where exactly I want them to tell me if it's on the lateral fingers is it between the webs is it evolve the pans does it go onto the dorsal hands does it extend above the wrist um, is it vesicular. That's yep. very important. Uh, vesicles usually often mean, not always, but mean allergy. Mm -hmm. Or is it just cracking and fissuring? And is it on the distal fingertips with fissures and between the webs? Um, so so as you know, there, there are about nine types of hand eczema. And sometimes there's a combination. There frequently can be a combination of several types. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's atopic hand dermatitis. There's the numular variety. Yep. Um, I separate out uh, dyshidrosis and pomphlex. I actually use dyshidrosis as an adjective. 
Okay. So that's when you get those little blisters along the lateral borders of your fingers. But you the can tapioca s- pudding, if you will. Yeah, you can see uh, dyshidrosis is part of allergic contact. Yeah. You can see it as a part of uh, atopic hand dermatitis, yeah. or you can see it primarily just, you know, patients writing exams. All those residents about to write their fellowships next week, they may be getting a little dyshidrotic hand eczema. I mean, possible. <laughs> Apophilix, on the other hand, is a very separate thing, uh, very rare, you know, where people come in maybe once every two years with those great big, mm-hmm. large, almost bullous lesions that last yeah. seven to 10 days, and that's, and then they go away. And right. whether that is some weird systemic contact that we just don't know the answer to, or if that's endogenous. Chronic vesicular hand eczemas also uh, can be a manifestation of allergy or not. Yeah. Um, irritant contact, and I sort of break that also into that frictional group. Yeah. I mean, it, it, certainly irritant, the commonest irritants are just soap and water, and mm-hmm. that would be impacted by your profession. Um, and often between the webs and the cracking on the distal fingertips. But there's a subset of frictional uh, where let's say you're uh, working at the casino and you're dealing cards or counting money or something that's repetitive action. I really wish that we had video for this podcast because the residents would really appreciate your Melanie is showing you very specifically where the distribution is, but I'm the only one that's benefiting from, from this yes. direct visual teaching. Yes. So. Sorry, then, so you got then, to picture it. <laughs> and then that hyperkeratotic hand eczema, which is usually in men yeah. who are occupational, patch test negative, yeah, get uh, a cre- it looks psoriasiform, but just Andy gets really mad at me when I say that word because it's not psoriasis, <laughs> it's hyperkeratotic hand eczema. And they're very uh, recalcitrant to treatment and hard to turn around and... Um, uh, do have to be repositioned if they're in a work site that is contributing. And okay. then, of course, allergic contact. Right. So um, it's important to understand about hand dermatitis, the different types. Uh, important to take a proper history Yeah. Um, and what you're using at home, what medicaments you've been prescribed, um, what you're using at work, gloves, and definitely detergents, shampoos, cleansers. Um, and then topical medicaments like over-the-counter, polysporin. Everybody's putting yeah. polysporin on their Tea hands. Tea tree oil. Tea tree oil. Essential oils. And um, and then um, finally, um, every chronic hand eczema should be patch tested probably. Right. Yeah. Because there is a component often um, of allergy. Uh, we know that probably 10% of the population has a chronic hand eczema. It's a big part of any physician's office, family docs, but certainly dermatologists. And about 2.4% of them are refractory. So it's important to uh, to recognize when they are. And um, and yeah. So when you see, so let's say you see that hand eczema, you've done all your history, you think that there's probably an allergic contact component, you're going to patch them. Now, if you're you, you can probably do that right away. But you know, well, how if you're not you or you don't have access to that immediate patch testing, so you get the referral in, you're going to do it, or you get them lined right. up, how do you manage those people that's a good, in yeah. terms of general recommendations? Yeah. So here's the thing that's really important. 
when I see these people and, and everybody takes my list and gives it to them, but they don't tell the person to stop what they're using. Right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so you can't use them both. Okay. So the yeah. whole point is until we test you, and that might be a wait, and I do triage. I mean, occupational, I think, get priority for right. sure. Yeah. So I hands, bad hands, we do try to move up. So if they're using Pantene and Tresemme and Dove Shampoo, all of which have methylisothiazolone, you got to look at their products and ask them those questions what they're using and say, right. do not use that and at least until we test you. And this is when I would give them uh, maybe Live Clean or Free and Clear or okay. that Gliss by Schwarzkopf. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, because it's less likely they would react to that. And then right. also the dish detergent. Yes. So Nelly's unscented, okay. uh, not Dawn or Sunlight, which have methylisothiazolone. Yeah. And we use uh, accelerator-free gloves. So I yep. tell them it's specifically, you know, Mr. Clean Bliss, Index-free or Niplex gloves, all of which are accelerator-free. Yeah. Get rid of those liquid pump soaps, hand soaps. Almost yep. all of them have methylisothiazolone and fragrance, and they're irritating. I do use Dove for sensitive skin bar soap. It does have cocoa, middle, propyl betaine, but frankly, that's not a real big player. Okay. I mean, yeah. Um, and um, I I say Purell is very irritating. You can get Avagard, which yep. is uh, got dimethicone in it. It's it's not as irritating. Um, I like to use, I say specifically what hand cream. Right. What, um, and what do you, I used to love to tell people plain Prevex, but they can't. Really yes. Get it Prevex anymore, was so. lovely. It's unfortunate. I wish they bring that back. CeraVe hand cream is okay. Okay. Yeah. And, uh, or Vaseline. Um, yeah. And if you're not sure, certainly tell them to stop the tea tree oil and stop the essential oils, stop the polysporin. They're still using it. And everybody says, oh, I told them not to use it. Well, no, you didn't, because they are using it when they come in. <laughs> They're not as forceful as you are now. Uh, I, uh, and then, I, as you know, I do like, um, as far as topical steroids are concerned, I, I do like Betaderm ointment. Yes. First of all, it's cheap. It's readily available. It has no propylene glycol. It does have chlorocresol, but that's very rare. Uh, and... Um, I, uh, um, it's in a steroid group where you rarely see allergy. Right. We've covered a lot of ground here. I mean, I think there's so much to be covered in allergic contact. And if you're at a training site where maybe you don't have one of the people that spends a lot of time right. doing extra contact clinic, it is, I usually do try to encourage our residents to go and do an elective. Uh, and there's lots of opportunities across the country to do that. So, um, I know. would also encourage too, to people to realize that if they don't have that facility at their center, doing a screening series is, I mean, you would use that so much in your practice. It is worth the expenditure and to train your your nurse in your unit or if you're with a group. Um, and, and certainly there's other derms in Ottawa, as you know, uh, Dr. Fahim and Dr. McHale will do a screening series yeah. in their office. And it's an invaluable part of the workup of patients. So if you don't have a center, then it, I think it behooves you to get a screening series. and Do the basic uh, yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, you'll capture probably, um, well, with with our North American series, we probably diagnose 60% of the cases. Right. 
That's pretty good odds. Yeah. I would take that at a casino. <laughs> well, listen, I, as usual, Mel, you've been, uh, <laughs> you always have a lot of great tips. And, you know, I, I think the residents can learn a lot from you. So uh, thank you so much for joining me on this version of the podcast. Okay. And uh, is there any, um, you have like a last um, minute plug or anything, sorry, anything we didn't cover that you think would be of relevance the residents just must know um i think that it, it, i think it's actually as you say worthwhile doing um an elective you don't get it at your uh, in your program because you realize by doing that how much you are missing by not yeah um doing some patch testing in your practice and um it's like anything uh, the lack of knowledge or the fact that you're not recognizing it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. It exists and it's a major part of dermatology. So, you know, it's in your patient's best interest to to screen them and to have that facility. Yeah. Totally agree. Again, thanks so much. Okay. Very nice. My pleasure. Dr. Melanie Pratt is a research director at the University of Ottawa's Department of Medicine and a leading authority on contact dermatitis research and treatment. And that's it for this inaugural season of Dermalogs. If you haven't already, please make sure you hit subscribe to the podcast so you'll be notified when the next season comes out. And in the meantime, share us with your friends, give us a rating and review on iTunes. I'm Dr. Carrie Purdy. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>